you're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Gas, 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 gas. Who needs to buy some cheap gas? Here's Scott Thompson. Here we are, day 15 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we remember when this when this first started and uh, the methodical uh, slowly build up, I guess, of Russian troops around the border, the convoy that kept growing in length and such. Uh, and then when this battle initially started, uh, with the Ukraine holding its own and putting on an incredibly courageous uh, front, um, we all thought it was just a matter of time before Russian un- Russia unleashed its machine and, and, and did whatever it was that they were trying to do. But at day 15, uh, many are questioning uh, where Russia is right now uh, with their military plans and, of course, support for all of this. To talk more about all of this, Sudarsan Rugovan is with us, correspondent at large, Washington Post, and with us now. Uh, Sudarsan, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Good, good to be here. So what are your thoughts on this? When this first started uh, 15 days ago, it, it seemed almost like a cat and mouse game, that it was only going to be a matter of time before Russia pounced. Have they uh, pounced? Is it still just a matter of time? Or how has this changed? Well, uh, you know, it, it depends on where you're looking at in Ukraine. Certainly uh, what people had expected in Kiev, the capital has not happened. I mean, everyone here was thinking that the Russians would be able to enter the city quickly in, in a matter of days. But here we are entering into the third week of the of the war, and the both you know the, the Russian ground force push into Kiev, uh, you know, significantly slowed down. The, the Ukrainians are, are mounting a, a very valiant defense of the city. Um, uh, the, the Russians right now are about. 15 to 17 miles in the north of the capital. And they've also got some positions in the east and part of the west, but they've not been able to completely encircle the city, uh, which what many analysts and observers have kind of expected by now. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians are, you know, they're, they've become cohesively resilient. You've, you're seeing uh, thousands and thousands of civilians uh, you know, joining, signing up to fight the Russians. Uh, they've gone to, you know, police stations and other security offices to sign up and they come out with weapons. They're now many of them are manning checkpoints uh, on the outs uh, on all the important uh, arteries entering the, the capital. Others are making Molotov cocktails. And, and I think, you know, part of all, Part of the reason is, you know, the Russian forces, is, you know, they're, they're basically strangers in Ukraine and the Ukrainians know their own country, of course. And so they've been able to uh, mount uh, uh, an excellent uh, defense and, you know, largely using guerrilla tactics and to, to bring the uh, to, to, to prevent the Russians from 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 pushing further into the city. But they've also used uh, you know things like surface air missiles and, and and Turkish drones to knock out Russian columns. In fact, one of those things happened uh, today uh, in which uh, you had a, a drone by the Ukrainians uh, really uh, knock out part of a, a column of Russian tanks in the northeast. And there's actually video footage of that, uh, you know, being circulated on social media. Can NATO bring enough ammo in the back door to hold Russia off? Well, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm not a complete military analyst, so I don't, I don't fully know. But certainly um, the, the Ukrainians want more and more support. I mean, everywhere you go to on in, in checkpoints and uh and, uh, you know, the, the first thing they tell you when they hear you're an American is that, oh, you know, send, tell America to send us more Javelin missiles or we want to know mm. zone. You know, it's so definitely the Ukrainians are hoping that NATO and, and uh, the U.S. And, and, and the other European powers will 
boost their assistance, their military assistance to the uh, to them. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, almost every day you're, you're hearing the Ukrainian government talking about uh, how the Russians are committing war crimes. And, you know, they uh, you know, they which, you know, which many uh, human, uh, rights activists and Western officials agree that you know, their case could be made that Russia is committing some serious war crimes in, in, in Ukraine. But it's also part of a um, tactic by the Ukrainians to, to to gain more sympathy from the world, sympathy particularly from the West, to, to, to for them to you know practically shame them into helping the Ukraine, helping them more to fend off the the, the Russian the Russian army, which is more, more, uh, far more massive than than the Ukrainian forces. Uh, any uh, word on Putin's state of mind or support that he has or does not have? Uh, back at home we've certainly heard of the misinformation in russia a lot of them just think this is a liberation is that message still getting through usha feeling at this stage of the game the citizenry well again here i mean i think um it's um it's mixed um you know i'm trained so i'm not in russia i i don't really know the pulse of the people there but certainly from what i've been seeing uh, what i've been talking to my colleagues and so on there's definitely seems to be a good chunk of the russian population who you know who are uh, anti-war obviously with all of the uh all of the uh the sanctions hitting all these company after company almost every day you hear top you know multinational companies pulling out of out of russians and Apple and I mean it's just you know it's it must be affecting the Russian population severely and uh, and obviously you know at some point you know I guess the thinking is that uh, is that the, the anger will be turned upon Putin or maybe even by his own internal uh, allies at some point uh, you know the, you know I guess you know what the hope is certainly for uh, Western United States and and, and Ukraine is. Uh, you know, there might be some kind of palace coup in Russia where where you have, um, you know, people, you know, so fed up with Putin that even his closest uh, turn against or plot against him. Of course, we don't know what's happening in, in the minds of of of, of the Russians, uh, especially, you know, inside the Kremlin. And, and Putin is is, ob- is obviously one of the most savviest uh, strategists uh, you know, ever in history. And he's got a lot of loyal support. So it's un- it's unclear what's going to happen there, but certainly, you know, things aren't going well in Russia, both uh, economically and uh, and militarily. You know, they're they're not they're not succeeding as at least as of now in Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think there must be some thoughts. You know, certainly within the the Putin circle of you know of what's going wrong in in Ukraine. Which you know, and and there must be. Uh, getting uh, extremely concerned about the way the war is headed and, and getting and being dragged on, being dragged out. Sudarsan Rugovan with us, correspondent at large in Ukraine for the Washington Post. Uh, Post. Sudarsan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, you're welcome. Good to be here. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We want to bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. U.S. President Biden has signed an order taking a look at cri- uh, cryptocurrencies, their usage and what the future is and whether that or not uh, st- uh, state or uh, central bank should actually get in the game. And Twitter, as Russia bans social media, uh, some have found a way around it. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this cryptocurrency. This is bizarre. Uh, as I'm reading this story, what I think I found fascinating was they're going to take a look at whether they should start their own. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's uh, it's about time. And I've been saying this for a long time. You know, you have this traditional currency system, usually, you know, revolving around a central bank that has full responsibility for that nation's currency. Uh, and then you have the non-traditional currency system, which is essentially cryptocurrency, usually backed by blockchain. And that has no connection to a central bank, no connection to a nationalized currency. And if if if, if the national bank or if the, uh, the institutions that govern them, if they don't sort of open their eyes and realize that the world is changing, they may find themselves outflanked. In other words, fiscal policy will shift away from government and toward who knows? And so, you know, it, it makes sense for governments to start studying 
what the deal is with cryptocurrency, whether in fact it does make sense for them to get into it, how they can protect everyone's interests, how they, they can kind of have their cake and eat it too. Um, because the longer they wait, the more this technology races ahead, the greater the risk of them being left behind, which kind of explains why we're seeing it in the form of an executive order now is the U.S. government, you know, obviously headed by Joe Biden, they, find, they finally, they're essentially saying, okay, it's been around for a few years. Now we got to figure it out. We don't have the answers yet, but we have to start asking those questions. We have to start talking. So if the government decides or a central bank decides to set up its own cryptocurrency, does that make the others uh, worthless or of less value? I don't think it does. I think what it does is it legitimizes it in the form that a rising tide raises all boats. So, for example, if you're trading in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or some other uh, form of cryptocurrency, the fact that a major government, any major government, has decided to legitimize the entire space by coming up with their own currency, I think you know, it adds a certain level of stability to these uh, pre-existing currencies that wasn't there before. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are afraid to get into it is that they worry about the volatility. They worry about the connection to uh, questionable actors, you know, the its involvement in crime, things like that. And so, you know, if a government can say, hey, let's look at all the, the rough edges of cryptocurrencies, let's introduce our own possibly. And they're not saying that they will. In fact, they may get into cryptocurrencies without introducing their own. That's one of the questions they need to figure out. Hmm. Um, but th- simply asking that question um, it tends to cast a more, let's call it stable uh, halo over the rest of the industry. And it gives more people a reason to go, hmm, maybe this isn't the domain of criminals. Maybe, you know, if the government's interested, I should be too. That being said, uh, you said legitimizes it, uh, tide, uh, rising tide, uh, rises all boats and such. But why would you use the others if you have one that's backed by a central bank and all of the protections and such that that come to play there. In other words, uh, you know, if the, if a state uh, bank or central bank comes up with its own cryptocurrency, um, you've got to think, uh, well, the last people that are going to use that are, are people for nefarious reasons. Therefore, the others are for those people. I mean, does it does it legitimize one uh, or, or, you know, meaning the official one, but the opposite for the rest? I think it's a good question, and certainly the potential for malfeasance, you know, for, for bad actors to do bad things with any form of currency is always going to be there. Um, but I think what it's it sort of, I think the answer to that really lies in current, you know, sort of the way the current, uh, you know, fiscal policy around the world is arranged. There are many currencies, each one associated with a particular country. Um, you know, the American dollar for the longest time has kind of been the standard of the world to, for a lot of people, but it's not hardly the only one. And certainly speculating in different currencies and trading them uh, has been a pretty lucrative business for a lot of people. And I kind of see the same thing playing out with uh, cryptocurrencies as well. If you want stability and, you know, you're fairly risk averse, you'll probably put your resources or focus on whatever cryptocurrencies the U.S. government or any other major government comes up, comes up with. If you're a little uh, more, uh, you know, able to tolerate risk, you, you got a little bit more acid in your stomach, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, you want to go for a larger gain, you want to speculate on it a little bit, maybe you will lean toward one of these unregulated cryptocurrencies. So I think there's a broad spectrum of experience, and I think bringing governments into the playground uh, certainly helps them all, but it certainly doesn't squeeze out the pre-existing ones. If, if there's a legitimate reason for Bitcoin to survive after the U.S. gets into cryptocurrency, it'll find a way. Does one have more value than the other? Would a, one related or connected to a central bank have more value? Um, certainly. I think, you know, for the vast majority of, of, of individuals, of agencies, of, of banks and other financial institutions, uh, I think they're looking for that kind of stability. That's really the value of an American or a Canadian dollar. It's backed by the government. Um, and certainly that's what's lacking with current cryptocurrencies as we know them. And so I think for the, for the, you know, the, the middle 80% of the bell curve of the economy, I think that's really the sweet spot that they're looking for. And that largely explains why we haven't seen mass adoption of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum thus far is most of us just don't operate in those kind of the edge of the fiscal, fiscal spectrum. Um, so certainly, I, I think what this does is it moves cryptocurrency toward the mainstream. It makes it more uh, likely that you and I would get involved in it. Um, but I think there will always be a kind of space at the edge of the spectrum, so to speak, for those who are a little bit more speculative. 
uh, and we'll probably still have uh, fringe or alternative currencies and, uh, and, and products available for those who want to dilly-dally in those as well. Unfortunately, we only got about 30 seconds left. Obviously, uh, Russia trying to block social media from going into that country and thus spreading other messages. Uh, what can Twitter or Facebook do about that? Well, Twitter has just introduced what's called Twitter for Torah, which is basically it's a version that works on the dark web on an onion server, um, which bypasses the limitations that the Russian government has placed on it. We're seeing many major services introduce similar services. Wouldn't surprise me if Facebook goes in that direction soon as well. It's a it's a never ending battle. The Russian government wants to shut down Western uh, tech platforms. Those Western tech platforms are introducing new techniques and tools and pla- and, and abilities. Uh, for uh, individuals within Russia and beyond to bypass them. This it's, it's the digital front of this very real war, and it's probably not going to end anytime soon. Two in five workers say that they'll actively look for another job if they're asked to return to the work full-time uh, into the office. But to talk more about all of this, Andrew Caldwell, Caldwell is with us, HR Advisory Manager, Peninsula Canada, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. I'm doing well, and I hope you're doing well as well. Yes, thanks so much. Uh, we're obviously hearing more and more information about restrictions being uh, loosened and more and more things getting back towards a normal. Is that more pressure on employees to be heading back to work? Oh, I think we'll be seeing some pressure coming down from up top, absolutely. We've got a lot of vacant offices in uh, downtown locations that need to be full. So how uh, how are employers dealing with this? How are they going to manage those employees that, uh, for the example, in the survey, two and five say they're going to look for another job if uh, we don't get some hybrid options here? Uh, and this is the, the fun part, right? We're in the, the great resignation, as they're calling it right now. So mm. resignations are a, a thing of prevalence right now in most employers' locations. So I think they're going to try to look at how do they retain top talent. And I think that they're going to come to that table with some negotiations and some room to move for those options, absolutely. So how does that change the template? You talked about empty offices, even if we're coming back three days a week or however many days a week. uh, Do we need that large of a template? How are the employers viewing this? They're feeling it in the the budget for sure, um, and they're going to have to look into it. Maybe they start to reduce their their physical locations and, and their spaces. Maybe they they go back to really open concept with people having larger desks uh, or, or some hotel desk where they can drop in, drop out. Maybe you set it up so that you have to be in the office for an important meeting uh, for that week, and then you're off. Maybe you're, you're in for one week, you're off for one week. They rotate it. So in terms of how the employers are going to feel it, they're going to feel that in their, their budgets for sure if they're they're paying for these large spaces, but they may also see a ding in productivity. Bringing back people into the office may drop productivity because people are now chatting more, having more coffee breaks, getting engaged with other workers while they're there after they haven't seen them in a long time. So you bring up a very valid them. point. He, you bring up yeah. a valid point here, Andrew, and I've I've talked to people about this that productivity. Many many people thought when everybody bailed that everybody was going to be screwing the pooch, not doing anything, bagging off, and in turn, just the exact opposite has happened. Productivity is way up. So, um, you know, if it's something that an employee wants and it's something that benefits the employer. Uh, do they want people back if it means less work done? That's just it, right? And so how are they tracking that work? How are they, how are they monitoring that performance? Will they see that? If you're being more productive, then your bottom line might be even better off than it was before while you're still paying for that space. So I think some big mis- businesses are going to be doing some number crunching to see what's the benefit, what is not the benefit. Will we see salary reduction if you get to stay home more? I, I I wouldn't say that's going to be off the table. I think some employers are going to try that. But again, we're in this period of the great resignation. So employers have to be careful. How hard do they want to push and lose talent that they may struggle to find? You know, we're talking here and in here, uh, you know, there's been many versions of hybrids, whether it's every other day, three days, what have you. We don't really even know, Andrew, what that's going to look like, because as we do head back, maybe that doesn't work well and maybe it's something completely different. We really don't know what it's going to look like, do we? 
that's just it. Some businesses will operate and be successful at the three days a week in the office, and some may be more successful with only two days in a week. It's really going to be down to how are we tracking this? What's going on? How does it work? And is the team there? Is the team enjoying this? Is the team not enjoying it? Maybe they open it up to be hybrid or not hybrid if that person is there. And I would almost argue to say that if someone does present themselves to be productive while at work and then they're doing the hybrid model and then, you know, put their feet up at home, move the mouse around with their foot a little bit sometimes and, and the productivity is not there, the employer may say, you know what, you got to come back into the office full time. So yeah. there will be an onus on the employees as well to ensure productivity meets this this benefit. New World, Andrew Caldwell with us, HR Advisory Manage, Peninsula Canada. Two in five workers say they're actively looking, or they will actively actively look for another job if they're asked to return to work full-time. Andrew, fascinating conversation. Thanks for the time. Be well. You as well, Scott. Lots of attention in the uh, conservative leadership race. I'm a poly head, and uh, usually this stuff interests me. But again, uh, with six months out, I'm not sure why we're that interested in all of this. Uh, but let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Tim. Hope you're doing well. Scott, I was just thrown off that there were no wills today. This is the first time I've talked to you, and there hasn't been at least one will. Tom is a lovely fellow, but where are the wills? I know. We've lost the wills for today. Instead, have a Tom and a Liz. But that's okay, too. They're all a great bunch. They're all fine people. You just want to get back to normal as quickly as we can, Tim. That's, you know, the change you've had in That's what it is. Without a will on uh, ringing me up or requesting. Now, Liz is great. I've been dealing with Liz for years. It just throws me off. But like the conservative leadership race, we've got six months to be thrown off by it. So are you surprised that we're talking about this now? Like, I'm pretty interested in this stuff. But even I find this, like, my goodness, uh, it's September 10th. It's six months away today. Are you surprised it's getting this much attention? I think it is because of the entry of Jean Charest and the apparent new entry, soon to be entry of, of Patrick Brown. I mean, the Charest candidacy, whether he can win or not, will obviously be determined over the next six months. Polyev would still be the front runner, significantly so, probably. But the fact that, you know, Jean Charest, who's been in our political life, uh, Scott, for nearly 30 years or more, is coming back into the game, I think, makes it kind of fascinating. And Patrick Brown, who obviously was rushed out of Ontario politics provincially, and then and then one in uh, in Brampton is is entering, and all of the 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 drama, of course, and the drama around what the what the Conservative Party can handle or not handle, and where will it go? I think has generated all of this attention. Uh, again, um, two candidates joining, whoop-de-doo, ch- changes all of this. Again, I have a hard time understanding why we're so interested in this um, six months out. Does it, and here's my theory, and maybe it's yeah. wrong, but is it that we're looking for, you know, after an opposition that has, well, continually shot itself in the foot, are we looking for a strong opposition here? Are people interested in what the opposition's going to be like? I think that's true, and I think there's a bit a bit of a desire for an alternative. I think um, we, we've talked often about Prime Minister Trudeau and his tenure and his political success, but I think over the last few months there's been a sense that there's been a drift. Um, now, maybe that's been corrected a little bit with, uh, with Canada's activities around the Ukraine or not, but I think there's a sense that there's a competitive space about to open in Canadian politics because the sense is... Uh, that uh, the Prime Minister, regardless of what's happening today, probably will be gone by the end of the year or early next year, and then there's a new game. And if the Conservatives can find a way to get their act together, that Mm. may make the game more interesting. And if they don't get their act together, that equally could provide a unique dynamic where the Liberals continue with a new leader for a period of time. So I think there's all of those little... bits and morsels that have maybe made the conservative leadership race interesting. And then when you inject a character like Jean Charest, who's, as I say, central to our political life for a very long period of time, and you see him wanting to come back into elected politics after 10 years with a fairly impressive resume, you wonder, hey, what does he sense that, 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 that we maybe don't, and should we pay attention to this? 
Uh, the Patrick Brown uh, CTV, we all know what happened back then. Uh, the story broke, CTV and Patrick Brown reaching a settlement. Uh, it, what about the timing of all of this? Uh, CTV regretting the, st- uh, the initial story and, and the facts not being straight and such. That being said, is, 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 does that change anything for Patrick Brown? Well, he, he at least doesn't have that lawsuit hanging over his head. Now, this leadership race, as you've seen, is going to be nasty. You've already seen the shots that Polyev has been firing at Sheree. If Patrick Brown gets some steam, don't be surprised that his past, even though he's been, um, uh, even though this lawsuit has been been settled. I suspect his past and allegations about his past will be used by his opponents to question his suitability for for leadership. So, and Patrick Brown knows that he's not a stupid fellow. He's been around politics long enough to know. So, the settling of the one suit, the settling of the lawsuit, is one thing. Um, his past will be used by his opponents in ways that they view as favorable to him. So, I don't think he's fully out of the woods on uh, on that chapter in his political history. The fact that this is taking six months, do you think that is too long, and does that work uh, for or against the Conservatives? Uh, well, I think they're hoping it works for them. I think they're hoping that the party itself is hoping that uh, a leadership race, unlike the last three, you can argue there's a greater level of top-tier candidates, um, and they're hoping that they'll be able to showcase something. The danger, of course, is it gets really vicious and really ugly, and what Canadians are left with is a picture of uh, political tribes supposed to be in the same family at war with each other, but the Conservatives of a pair are, are, are seem seemingly comfortable enough that they can manage the narrative. What it means is it's probably less um, uh, appealing to Pierre Polyev to have this thing go on longer, uh, he and his team, as you know, are advocating for it to be shorter. He's the best well-known among the Conservative Party right now. He wants to cash in on that notoriety, wanted the race to be shorter. I guess the concession to Polyev, Scott, is the fact that membership sales end on June the 3rd. Um, so you really have two races, right? You have the race to sell memberships, which is the most important one, because you've got 338 ridings. You're trying to sell many memberships as you can across the country to get as many points as you can in a preferential ballot. You want to do as well as you can in that first tranche. Then the second part of the leadership race is the persuading phase, where you're trying to get people who didn't sign up with you to think of you as their second choice. So that's the second part of the race. That's probably a bit of a bone to Sheree and Brown, who've not been in the uh, active in the federal conservative party uh, for uh, you know ten years and five years, respectively. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in regard to uh, the lifting of masks. Sorry, the lifting of the mask mandate. Yesterday, obviously, uh, this week, Dr. Kieran Moore announcing that as of March 21st, uh, which is after Labor Day, uh, masks will not be mandatory. It's your choice in Ontario. And kids heading back to school after March break will not be required uh, to wear masks. Um, some uh, are, are petitioning Ontario politicians or municipal politicians trying to get the masking mandates uh, kept in place. So uh, surprising today to see uh, Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, who uh, is BC's top doctor and, of course, uh, on NASI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Uh, and many have looked to her for guidance for the country uh, over the course of this. Uh, they're dropping their mask mandates as of this Friday. Uh, and, and, yeah, as of this Friday, no more masks in British Columbia. That's a full 10 days before Ontario and also heading back to uh, class after March break, students uh, will not be required to wear masks. Again, you can certainly wear one. It's voluntary. Uh, it's just the mandatory part is uh, removed. Uh, Dr. Bonnery Henry saying uh, hospitalizations are down, infections not uh, severe, and uh, again, as Ontario, pointing to a, a vaccination rate uh, for those 12 plus well over 90%. So for those reasons, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia saying their mask mandates will end as of Friday at 12.01 uh, a.m. Ontario's, of course, uh, March 21st. All right, does this divide us? Remember how uh, even getting people to put masks on 
at the beginning, you know, they weren't. They said that they weren't needed, then they were needed, but that's, again, just the natural evolution of learning about a virus. Um, but it was tough for people to put these on. Now it's difficult to take them off. Uh, or is it? Uh, even the chief medical officer of Ontario uh, yesterday said, or the other day said that, uh, you know, we've got to respect everybody, those that that are wearing still and those that are not. Let's bring in Dr. Kathleen, or sorry, Dr. Catherine Class, professor of medicine, uh, McMaster University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm well. Thank you very much, Scott. So uh, will be will taking off masks be as difficult as it was putting them on for for Canadians? Well, I think if Canadians start taking off their masks, then that will be very difficult for many Canadians. I'm thinking particularly about vulnerable Canadians, people who, because of their age or because they are immune suppression or because they are on dialysis, like many of my patients, people who can't afford to get COVID, people who know that if they get COVID, they experience higher risks and they experience a risk of death even. And so if people do start taking off their masks, then many people who are in these situations, people who are vulnerable, are not going to feel comfortable and are not going to be able to participate in society in the way that they would want to do. So I'm very respectful of other people's opinions, uh, but this is a collective responsibility that we have to each other to keep people safe. And as Canadians, we've always done that. We've always uh, kept people safe. We follow rules. We, um, we follow rules when we're driving, for example. And so I think that this really just um, follows along, even though we don't have a rule anymore. I think that I'm very hopeful and very optimistic that the majority of Canadians will continue to wear masks in public spaces. Uh, so you, do you disagree with the mandatory removal of the mandatory mask protocol? I think it's unkind. I think it's unkind to a number of groups. It's unkind to vulnerable people who cannot protect themselves fully by wearing their own mask. The protection is greatest when everybody wears a mask. Wearing, wearing a mask oneself does not give you 100% protection. It's unkind are there to... Not other way, are there not other ways to help those or protect those that are that vulnerable without the rest of the population wearing masks? Yes, Scott, they can stay home. They can stay home. And I don't think that that's fair. And I don't think that that's kind. And I think that we want a society where everybody participates, where we don't consider people to be um, lesser in some way or have uh, fewer opportunities to participate in society because they know that they can't afford to get COVID. Uh, hospital Hospital rates continue to drop. ICU rates continue to drop. Vaccination rates continue to go up. That's what, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Dr. Moore have have said for relaxing the mandatory uh, regulation. At, at what point do you take off or, or remove the mandatory uh, rule? Not now. I, I can't comment on the situation in British Columbia because I, do, I don't know it. But Dr. Peter Juni uh, has estimated that there are probably 15,000 to 20,000 cases per day in Ontario right now. And there were 150 cases a day when we put the mask mandate in place. There were 20 but when we put the mask, but wait a sec, isn't that, isn't, isn't, isn't that a little misleading, uh, doctor, simply because uh, when we started the mask mandate, it was a completely different uh, variant, uh, and there was absolutely no vaccine, and when we're ending it, it's a, it, it's a very much different variant that, although spreads more, is far less contagious, does not provide the hospitalizations, especially if you're vaccinated, and over 90% of the population in Ontario is. So those are two very different scenarios. Well, that's a really good question, actually. So in terms of is this Thank uh, you. variant milder? You're welcome. In terms of is this variant milder, this isn't my area of expertise. I'm not a virologist, but I know that there are some experts who say that the um, the difference that we see in severity with Omicron isn't a biological feature of Omicron. It's entirely to do with vaccination. And then when you talk about vaccination, although well, vaccination only protects the people whom vaccination protects. It doesn't protect people who are immunosuppressed. It doesn't protect people who are too young to be immunized. And, you know, even when you look at people between um, five and 11, only 50 odd percent of those people have now had two doses. So we really are um, 
we're, we're really still looking at a number of people in society who are not vaccinated or who will not benefit fully from the effects of vaccination. But there are some that they will, that will, that will, that will in, in many cases, what you're talking about, doctor, will never change. Uh, you're not going to get people who don't want to be vaccinated, vaccinated. Those that are compromised, uh, that situation is not going to change and allowing them to be vaccinated. So at what point do you uh, decide that you remove masks? That's, a, that's, that's the question, right? The people that I was talking about who are not vaccinated, they're children and they can be vaccinated. We can do better with our 5 to 11-year-olds. We may have a pediatric vaccine at some point. We can give third doses to our 12 to 17-year-olds. So there's work to be done there. All right. You know I love the polling. You know I love uh, through the course of this pandemic uh, measuring how our opinions have changed uh, over all of this. And there's some fa- uh, fascinating stuff coming out of the Angus Reid Institute, including 7 in 10 believe Canada's healthcare system is not well prepared to handle future pandemics. And also another big one, 82% believe that uh, the pandemic has pulled us apart, has divided us. Dave Krasinski is with with us, Research Director Angus Reid, and on the line now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks, Scott. I hope everybody's doing well out in Ontario uh, as well. We've, we're actually, uh, a couple hours ago, they said that they're lifting the mask mandate in BC where I am. So things are changing very quickly here. And uh, it, it feels like, uh, certainly in the data, people are feeling a little better about COVID these days. That's interesting because we've been talking about that since Dr. Bonnie Henry held her news conference. We saw that out here as well. And there's been lots of agitation or some agitation and petitions asking municipalities and the, and the province of Ontario to keep the mandatory mask mandates. Ours are good until uh, March 21st. Then they become voluntary. And it's surprising today to see Dr. Bonnie Henry drop the mask mandates uh, 10 days ahead of what Ontario has. Um, is that a, is it a positive? positive feeling for them out there like you said is it one of confidence or are some still cautious about it you know one of the things that we're not releasing this data until i think next tuesday but people can can keep it locked on angusread.org for for uh data that comes basically every day um but what we see certainly in bc and in atlantic canada the the two kind of regions in the country is really still very high levels of confidence in the way that the government has handled the the COVID-19 crisis, um, we've seen that diminished in a lot of places. Um, you know, in Alberta, Jason Kenney never really recovered from uh, it was mm-hmm. last August, September, when he apologized and said he had, had really miscalculated with the Delta wave. Um, same thing in Manitoba with the new premier, Heather Stephenson. Same thing a little bit in Saskatchewan. And then obviously Doug Ford. Um, he's rebounded a little bit, but that's that's more a case of COVID numbers dropping and, and people feeling a little better and then throwing him a bone rather than um, I think people's opinions really vastly changing. So I think there's confidence in, in BC in particular about the way the government is handling it. And most people will be on board, especially where I am in the central Okanagan. Um, Vancouver, you know, it has been a very uh, kind of people have been very committed to wearing masks and stuff. And I think that'll that'll continue for people who feel uncomfortable, it, that's that's going to be a part of certainly 2022, even when the mask mandates are gone. A lot of people are still going to wear them. I love the central Okanagan. Are you in Kelowna or Vernon? I, I am in Kelowna, yeah. Oh, uh, very nice. Very nice. All right, enough of that. Um, obviously, uh, the, the uh, research, the pandemic has pulled people further apart, 82%. The pandemic has brought out the worst in people, 79%. Canada's level of compassion for one another has grown weaker, 61%. Why are we so divided considering we had such or have such a massive vaccination rate? Do we need to be this divided? It seems with 90% vaccinated, instead of patting everybody on the back, we were vilifying the last 10 percent yeah that i and i think that's entirely what is driving this perception so these you know it's always interesting to go between public opinion and what what you might see um in in a different perspective when when you know you you don't aggregate everybody's thoughts in in this type of forum and i think a lot of people when they look at a question like that they think about those people on the margins you know the the 10% who who said they weren't getting vaccinated the whole time and 
really were kind of mobilizing over the last couple of months. I think the proximity to the the protests in Ottawa and um, at the borders are also still fresh in people's minds. So I think when they think about whether or not we've come together or whether or not we've we've been pushed further apart, they're they're looking at key instances that they've seen over the course of the two years, the protests, maybe people who in their life they've, they've had awkward moments with, you know, there's a lot of data that we're going to release soon about people looking back, you know, did they lose touch with, with people who they were friends with before Hmm. because of COVID and because of the, you know, maybe not following restrictions and canceling uh, events, not going to Christmas with the same people, these are things that, after two years, everybody looking back, really does have an instance uh, to to kind of uh, back that up with. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that you know everybody has has been on their worst behavior, but almost everybody has a couple of instances where they can remember. Oh yeah, that person was was really rude to me, and and they can come up with somebody who has been uh, that they might seem further apart from now. And I think what's really interesting in this is that this is what you're seeing a lot of in the conservative leadership race is that message of unity and we've got to come together. I was watching Jean Charest earlier saying the country's very divided and he's going to run. He's not going to attack the people in the race with him, Pierre Polyev and others. He's going to run this unity campaign. And I think mm. that there's a lot of people that are looking for that in Canada right now. Obviously, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen lots of sanctions uh, come down as uh, the rest of the world tries to put pressure on Vladimir Putin. Uh, now we are seeing American companies uh, and brands pulling out or shutting down operations, uh, at least temporarily, in Russia as uh, obviously day 15 of uh, of this invasion continues. To talk more about all of this, Joaquin Schultz is with us, Professor of Augmented Reality Marketing, Brock University, and with us now. Joaquin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, great. Scott, how are you doing? Thanks for having I'm, me. I'm doing great. Thanks so much. So pretty major companies, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, Coke and Pepsi, uh, now suspending or closing operations there. What does this mean? How are those in Russia reacting to this when they see some of their favorite brands shutting their doors? I mean, in Russia, you see some uh, protests by the population there, which is fantastic, uh, despite the situation in Russia. And I think to some extent that can signal encouragement, right? It's not only them who are risking, uh, like, like speaking, uh, speaking up, but also companies. And I think that's, that's encouraging. And what does it mean for these companies? How big a blow is it? How, how much does it cost them to shut these down or temporarily shutter them? I mean, obviously, it kind of hits the bottom line to some extent, right? But you have to kind of differentiate between monetary income and also reputational uh, returns. Uh, so, for example, if you looked into McDonald's, uh, only 3% of their income, operating income, comes from Russia. And, I mean, that's 3% is something, but not the biggest chunk. Uh, on the plus side, uh, the reputation boost McDonald's get from uh, shutting down their um, stores in Russia is enormous. Um, and that, I would say, outweighs uh, the price of uh, what they're losing right now in Russia. So a lot of these companies doing this for the perception back home domestically? I mean, it's hard to say because, like, obviously, like, companies are run by human beings and, like, human beings are affected by atrocities like war. Uh, and I'm not sitting in the boardrooms where the decisions are made. But, I mean, to some extent, I would say that there is also the recognition of companies to say, look, uh, our consumers, they're expecting companies to speak up for uh, our values, to speak up for on social issues. And this is really a social issue that is uh, universally supported in the Western world to condemn the Russian aggression against Ukraine and uh, not to kind of react to this and just kind of conduct business as usual, that would be uh, harmful for their reputation. So I think there's probably a little bit of both, you know, like people are people and they are affected by it and they want to do something, but it's also making sense from like a marketing perspective to uh, voice your support for the Ukrainian people. 
We certainly hear that uh, Russians are not being kept abreast of what's going on. They're getting painted a completely different picture with uh, state-controlled media and such. Um, are Russians at, well, and initially we're told this was all about a liberation and, and Ukraine needed them. Are Russians now asking themselves, well, why are these U.S. brands all pulling out? Why are they all shutting down? Is that resonating? It's hard to say. It's very early for this, um, but yeah. like, we have to kind of follow how it works. Like what I find is interesting here is that um, like, there's an economic um, kind of pressure being applied through corporations, which is actually now doing a little bit more than uh, you could argue on like the um, military action side. And so it's a very interesting way how like these conflicts are shaping in, in today's economies that's, that are so intricately connected with each other. So like the way how it supports the Russian people and the anti-war movement in Russia remains to be seen, I would say. But I think it's an interesting um, development uh, and it speaks to our global economies. Uh, McDonald's saying that it is closing 850 store locations uh, temporarily, but it's still paying at 62,000 employees in Russia who they say have poured their heart and soul into the McDonald's brand. That's a tremendous amount of people. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the right thing to do, I think, for McDonald's, right? Because you don't want to harm people. You don't want to harm the average worker. You want to kind of speak up, but you don't want to kind of harm people who have nothing uh, to do with this crisis. Like those are ordinary working people. Uh, and why should they kind of bear the the, uh, the negative outfall of this? I think McDonald's is leading by example here. How do you? Uh, wh- how long do you do this? Does it depend on how long, obviously, the the occupation or the invasion lasts? When 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 do you decide? Okay, it's time to go back. That's a great question. Like uh, I think that's the exact question. Like people at McDonald's and other places uh, asking themselves right now. Uh, I think it's a situation that uh, needs to be kind of adjusted on like a day-to-day basis i mean it's good that companies kind of went in now for the last couple of days and said look enough is enough we're going to pulling out and i don't think they've looked in advance like they don't look into the future that far because you don't know how it looks like in a week from now in like five days or two days even from now i think this is something companies really forces companies to really be uh in real time acting in real time uh monitoring the situation carefully and then deciding on the spot, like what the next steps of actions are. Um, and who knows? Like, I don't anticipate them completely pulling out, us, out of Russia forever, but whether, whether it's going to be like weeks or months, that needs to be seen in the future. We were talking uh, not too long ago about uh, getting back out, uh, the single life after a global pandemic and and masks and protocol and hugs and kisses and bumps knuckle bumps and social distancing and man it's become pretty complicated how do you know what to do thank goodness i just uh was single in the era of safe sex that's all you had to worry about now it's a mask and a condom uh well but as we're seeing protocol slowly being uh lowered and people getting back out and doing their thing. Uh, now Tinder is offering background checks on your potential dates. <laughs> Why not? And a stats ca- a stats can report uh, says that in 2020 Canada saw the lowest amount of divorces since 1973. I'm not sure if uh, that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, if that's by choice or because there was just impossible to get services. Let's bring in Laura Bellotta, single in the city, and is with us now. Laura, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott Thompson. How's it going? Good. Tell everybody what Single in the City is. Single in the City is a dating company. We've been around since 2020, and I do host a dating and relationship show on AM640 on Sunday nights. Um, we host events. Uh, we've got a matchmaking service. We, um, I help people with their dating lives. I'm a coach, and that's basically what we do at Single in the City. And you, didn't, you started this in the pandemic? No, 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 no. Oh, I thought you said you started in 2020. No. Oh, sorry. I said 2020. Oh, my God. Uh, sorry. Uh, I heard you. Say, uh, okay. Tw- 2002. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So there, there you go. That's a little ways ahead of time. So you had the dating thing down long before this pandemic rolled around. Way uh, before. Like let, let's talk about... Sense. 
Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. All right. Let's talk about the divorce rate first. Then we'll get to the, the dating thing. Uh, lowest stats can reporting lowest divorce, a divorce rate since 1974. Is that by choice or is that, uh, because it's probably hard to get services during a pandemic? I don't know. Like, I, I think that the, what uh, the article that I read, it, it said that it, this was a, from 2020, right? This yeah. article? Yeah. I believe. So, well, this is what I believe, okay? So the pandemic just started in 2020. Mm. So I'm sure with the lockdowns just starting in 2020, that may have contributed to the slow number. I'm sure uh, just... I'm just not sure that people were running out at that time and heading straight for a divorce. You know, court was online. They had slowed down. uh, Less urgent cases were being adjourned. I think the effects of the pandemic have not shown up yet. And we will be seeing more divorces as we begin to open up. I think financial barriers could have also made it impossible for people to leave their relationships. Hmm. Um, I do know, right, like some from some research that jurisdictions all over the world and in nearly every city in the U.S. were reporting significant increases in domestic violence, for example. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of financial strain put on people. And we know that financial strain in a relationship is one of the top reasons for divorce. Um, and you know what? How about those relationships that were already doomed prior to the pandemic? You know, like what happened mm-hmm. to those guys? Um, but then on another hand, like if we want to look at it a different way, um, I think the pandemic may have actually improved and strengthened some of those relationships. You know, there was a there was a, a national poll released in February uh, by Monmouth University where they said that 70% of romantically committed American adults are extremely satisfied in their relationship. That's amazing. So, you know, in tough times, Scott, like these, right, um, I think some couples, they figure it out and they stay mm. together. They view the relationship as like their rock, you know, that provides them strength, stability, and a foundation for resilience, especially when life becomes so overwhelming and so difficult, you know? So I'm confused myself, Scott. At this point, I'm not sure what to make of it. (laughs) But I guess time will tell and we'll see. And obviously, you have to think after two years of being in this, and next week it's two years for most of us, um, that the the pandemic has changed people's priorities. You were saying people are, you know, looking more at the relationship now. Perhaps they're uh, less distracted because there was nothing else to do during a global pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has changed people's perspectives of relationships? Yeah, like I said, I think, you know, I think it's brought us... Um, it's, it's brought people closer together. I think yeah. people are connecting on a much deeper level. Like, whereas I think, you know, we're such a superficial, uh, we're so superficial, right? We really yeah. are. Everything is about looks and, and that sort of thing. But I think that what the pandemic has done is, has made us stop and really like, um, stop to think about who we are and like be more intentional when we're putting ourselves out there and what we're truly looking for and to stop and to build that, you know, much needed deeper connection. So taking it back a little old school, you know, where mm. we wouldn't jump into having sex right away, learning more about the person, getting to know who they were before we jumped in too quickly. So I, and that's a good thing, right? Because I don't think that any of us should be jumping into relationships too quickly because we don't know that person, right? And then the red flags are going to start popping up and then we tend to ignore them because we've jumped in so quickly. We've become emotionally attached to this person. We're having sex and and all that. And now it's so much harder to leave. So Mm. I I love that. You know, I, I don't, I hate the pandemic. Okay. I hate everything about the pandemic, but that's one good thing that may have come out of it. And Tinder now going to allow background checks for potential dates. Mm. Many are concerned about security. Uh, I'm not sure Tinder's the favorite site for that. But uh, that being said, <laughs> what are your thoughts on how uh, how uh, how online dating has advanced through all of this? Yeah, so, you know, and with the whole uh, background check thing, I think I like it. You know, I think it can serve as a valuable tool to help you figure out who you may be dealing with because they're, listen, let's face it, right? There's a lot of really weird, creepy, mm. like not so good people out there. Unfortunately, there are more good people, but there are some bad people. 
Um, but then on the other hand, like it may create a false sense of safety when it, it shouldn't be there because not all sexual violence, you know, I believe, you know, from also reading some stuff that is reported and convictions are, are sometimes rare even when reported. So you may, you may be missing out on some dangerous people, right? So I think, I think it's important to do your own work. Like you have to take, like it's wise to keep a few safety precautions in mind. Our days, and if you want some of those, I can. If we have, can yeah, go ahead, real quick. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll be quick. Um, so avoid connecting with someone that has no bio, has only posted one picture, because it might be a fake account. Um, find hints that they use in their profile to search them on social media or on Google. Okay, so if you know uh, your match's name or handles on social media, you know, like look at their profile. Are they following people? Are people following them? Are they engaging with people? Listen, I found out a guy's identity by his occupation. Um, online, right? And then when I Googled, it, Googled him, I found out that he had several fraud accounts amounting up to $500,000. Now, hmm. should I take a chance on a guy like that? No, thanks, <laughs> right? So do your research. Google, Google, Google. Block and report suspicious users. You know, don't give anybody your personal information. Don't give anybody money. When you meet them in person, video chat with them before they meet, you know, meeting up. And if they say no, then that's a red flag. Tell a friend where you're going. Let them know, you know, and then have them check in on you. Meet in a public place. I can't believe how many people still go to a stranger's house. Why are you going to a stranger's house on a first date? Like, guys, this is common sense. I know I sound a little, you know, harsh right now, but, like, I have to be harsh because you've got to stop doing these things. Don't rely on your transport. Like, don't rely on your date for transportation. Don't have them pick you up. They are a stranger, guys. Stranger danger. Joining us, uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing fine. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, it's interesting because we saw uh, earlier on this week Dr. Kieran Moore announced that March 21st, uh, masking would not be mandatory uh, in Ontario. The kids heading back to school after March break uh, don't have to wear a mask voluntarily. If you want to, you certainly can. Uh, Doug Ford getting lots of heat, a lot of people screaming at him, saying he's only doing this for an election. Uh, which is coming up in June. Uh, that being said, I was very surprised today that Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, announced that uh, British Columbia, and this is, you know, a part of NASI, she's a part of NASI, was very much, uh, you know, a, post- a poster person for how to do this right. Uh, British Columbia announcing today they are dropping their mask mandate as of tomorrow, uh, a full 10 days ahead of Ontario, and again, heading the kids back to school after March break without uh masking in place again a full 10 days ahead of ontario as far as the mandatory rules are is will demasking uh be as hard as masking up will it be just as divisive for people yes and and it will I mean, <laughs> imagine imagine for a second that you are someone who believes this is a really bad idea to get rid of masks and there are lots of people and they're Opinions are legitimate, and they truly believe this. They're not just being difficult. So you, you believe yep. that everyone should still be wearing this. You're in the line at the grocery store, and the person behind you who isn't wearing a mask suddenly coughs or sneezes. <laughs> yep. And you, you get a head for the hills. The, the, the stink eye that that person is going to get or give is going to be unbelievable. We are going to be, I think, I, I really believe this, we are going to be cut into two camps and you're going to probably believe the people in the other camp, some of you anyway, uh, are not doing, are, are out of their minds. Why, why would you possibly do this? And, and I, I really believe Scott, that's why politically, whether it's in BC or whether it's here in Ontario, there's not a winning political strategy to this. I like for the mm. people who say that the politicians are doing this because there's an election coming up. Okay. But if they are, and if the calculus is for winning votes in an election, have they not just lost your vote and the people who think like you? So uh, how is that helping them in an election campaign? Like, this is one of the ones, and there's been a bunch of these through this pandemic. I don't know what the right answer is if you're trying to judge things to make political decisions. Because half the people think you're an idiot for doing one thing, and half the people think you're an idiot if you do the opposite. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to have some pretty good political scientists working through some numbers 
to be able to make decisions that give you an advantage. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases. Uh, it, you know, it was disconcerting um, because, you know, again, it is a personal decision, and some people are having a hard time accepting that, thinking it should be up to everybody. Uh, and I had a doctor on, and, and she said, um, well, you know, right now there are way more cases of COVID-19 than there were uh, now that we're t- getting rid of masking than there were when we started and we implemented masking. And this was from a doctor. And, and, and I stopped her and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Before we started masking, this was ripping through long-term care, killing people left and right. And it was, there was a very, very, very dangerous variant. Uh, now we have a vaccine and people more than 90% of Ontario is vaccinated and we have an, a, a variant which is much, 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 much less severe. So how can you sit there and, and say, well, we were not masking now and we got way more cases than we did when we started that, that you just can't, that's not, that's inaccurate. Well, if that is the position that the doctor is going to take, and that's, again, uh, that's fine. That's, that's, yeah. their, that's their professional opinion. I would suggest that doctor probably also believes that when the flu season starts, we yeah. should all be going back to masking because yeah. it is very passable. And look, there are... And, that, and that's what I brought up. She said, and, and this person said, like, 50 people died, whatever, just again, and I don't know what the stats are, but however many people died this week. And I said, well, how many people died uh, uh, this week, uh, two, three years ago before COVID from the flu? And she said, very valid point. But again, we're not... Why are we being so divisive on this? I, well, I don't I understand think- why we need to. Scott, I really, I do really believe, and it's something I've been talking about on the show for almost two years now. I believe that when this thing is gone, whenever that is, we are going to be having a new discussion which says, wait a second, if wearing masks and washing hands and having social distancing has essentially eradicated influenza, because Canada has had basically like literally zero cases. We've had almost no cases of the flu in this country mm-hmm. for the last two years. If doing all those things has ended the flu and the flu kills people, not the same number as COVID, but the flu kills people, especially elderly people and people in places like long-term care, are we going to be having a bunch of experts coming up next year saying all the things we did should be mandated now to do it again for the flu because a life dying of COVID is no worse than a life dying from the flu? Scott Radley with us. We'll be coming up right after the 6 o'clock news with the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, thanks so much, Scott. Have a great show. You too, or thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.